Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss another shipwreck involving sunken treasure, the Mona Lisa, and the Hope Diamond. September 5th, 1622. A hurricane in the Florida Keys sinks a Spanish treasure ship called Our Lady of Antocha. 260 passengers and 200 million pesos were buried under 50 feet of water, and only five men were rescued. Our Lady of Antocha was built for the Spanish crown in Havana in 1620. It was a heavily armed Spanish galleon that served as the rear guard for the Spanish fleet. The Atocha would trail behind the other ships to prevent an attack from the rear. It was the most widely known vessel among the fleet of ships that sank in the hurricane on September 5th. It was rated at 550 tons with an overall length of 112 feet. At the time of the sinking, the ship was heavily laden with copper, silver, gold, tobacco, gems, and indigo from Spanish ports at Colombia, Panama, and Havana, bound for Spain. Our Lady of Atocha was delayed in Veracruz en route to Havana with the vessels of the mainland fleet. The treasure, which arrived by mule in Panama City, was so immense that it took two months to record and load it onto the Antocha. After more delays in Havana, what was ultimately a 28-ship convoy did not depart for Spain until September 4, 1622, six weeks late. Each ship in the convoy carried crew, soldiers, passengers, provisions, and treasures from all over South America. The Atocha alone carried cargo with estimates ranging between $250 and $500 million. This included bronze cannons, silver from Bolivia, Peru, and Mexico, gold and emeralds from Colombia, pearls from Venezuela, and common goods including silverware and tobacco. On the second day of the voyage from Havana, the convoy was overtaken by a hurricane in the Florida Straits. By the morning of September 6th, eight of the ships had sunk and the remains lay scattered across the ocean. The Atocha lost all 265 crew members and passengers, except for three sailors and two slaves, who survived by clinging onto the mast of the ship. All of the treasure sank with the ship, about 85 miles off the coast of Havana. After the surviving ships brought news of the disaster back to Havana, Spanish authorities dispatched another five ships to salvage the Atocha and another ship called the Santa Margarita, which had run aground nearby. Our Lady of Atocha sunk in water over 50 feet deep, making it difficult for divers to retrieve any of the cargo or guns from the ship. The loss of the 1622 fleet was a severe blow to Spanish commercial interests, forcing the crown to borrow more and sell several galleons to raise funds. The Spaniards undertook salvage operations for several years with the use of Indian slaves and recovered nearly half of the registered cargo from the Santa Margarita. The principal method used to recover cargo was a giant brass diving bell with a glass window on one side. A slave would ride to the bottom, recover an item, and returned to the surface by being hauled up by the men on deck. It was somewhat effective, but often lethal. 
Dead slaves were recorded as a business expense by the captains of salvage ships. The Spanish worked diligently and were able to salvage most of the Santa Margarita over the next 10 years. However, after 60 years of searching, the Spanish never located the Atocha. In 1969, American treasure hunters Mel Fisher and Finley Ricard, along with a team of subcontractors, began searching the seabed for Our Lady of Atocha. In 1970, Fisher recovered portions of the wrecked cargo of the sister ship, Santa Margarita. Silver bars from the Atocha were found in 1973. Cannons with inscriptions that verified the wreckage of the Atocha were found by Fisher's son, Dirk, in 1975. A substantial part of its remaining cargo of silver, gold, and emeralds was discovered soon after. It was Fisher's son, Kane, who radioed the news to the headquarters on the Florida coast, from their salvage boat called Dauntless. The salvage coins, both gold and silver, were minted primarily between 1598 and 1621, although many earlier dates were seen as well, some extending well back into the 16th century. Most of the gold and rare emeralds would have been held in the captain's cabin, which has never been found. In June of 2011, divers from Fisher's team found an antique emerald ring believed to be from the shipwreck. The ring is estimated to be worth $500,000. It was found 35 miles from Key West, along with two silver spoons and other artifacts. In 2014, Our Lady of Atocha was added to the Guinness Book of World Records for being the most valuable shipwreck to be recovered, as it was carrying roughly 40 tons of gold and silver and over 70 pounds of emeralds. Here's my take on Our Lady of Atocha. I can't imagine how much treasure is littered all over the ocean floor from shipwrecks over the years. And I can't imagine getting in one of those diving bells either. If you haven't seen one before, do a Google image search. Or play the um, Assassin's Creed game where you're a pirate. I can't remember the name. But you use the diving bell on that too. I can't think of anything much worse than diving 50 feet in that fucking thing. And you know the cunt captains would never take that risk. they just make the slaves do it. September 7th, 1911. French poet Guillaume Apollinaire is arrested and put in jail on suspicion of stealing the Mona Lisa from the Louvre Museum. The Mona Lisa is a portrait painting by Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci. Considered a masterpiece of the Italian Renaissance, it has been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, and the most parodied work of art in the world. The subject's facial expression, among many other aspects of the painting, are still widely discussed and interpreted. Of Leonardo da Vinci's works, the Mona Lisa is the only portrait whose authenticity has never been seriously questioned. The painting was acquired by King Francis I of France and is now the property of the French Republic. It has been on permanent display at the Louvre in Paris since 1797. The Mona Lisa bears a strong resemblance to many Renaissance depictions of the Virgin Mary who is at the time seen as ideal for womanhood. The woman sits upright in an armchair with her arms folded, 
a sign of her reserved posture. Her gaze is fixed on the person viewing the painting. She has no clearly visible eyebrows or eyelashes. The soft blending creates an ambiguous mood, mainly in two features, the corners of the mouth and the corners of the eyes. The painting was one of the first portraits to show the subject in front of an imaginary landscape, and Leonardo was one of the first painters to use an aerial perspective. A vast landscape behind her recedes into the icy mountains. The painting has been identified as Italian noblewoman Lisa Gherardini, the wife of a wealthy merchant named Francesco del Giocondo. The title of the painting is based on this presumption. Renaissance art historian Giorgio Vasari wrote that Leonardo undertook to paint for Francesco del Giocondo the portrait of Mona Lisa, his wife. Leonardo never gave the painting to the Giocondo family, and later it is believed that he left it in his will to his favorite apprentice. It is believed to have been painted between 1503 and 1506. Proof that Leonardo painted Lisa del Giocondo and its date were confirmed in 2005 when a scholar at Heidelberg University discovered a marginal note in a 1477 printing of a volume by ancient Roman philosopher Cicero. Dated October of 1503, the note was written by Leonardo's contemporary, Agostino Vespucci. This note states that Leonardo was at the time working on a painting of Lisa del Giocondo. After the discovery of this document, a Louvre representative stated that Leonardo da Vinci was painting, in 1503, the portrait of a Florentine lady by the name of Lisa del Giocondo. About this, we are now certain. Unfortunately, we cannot be absolutely certain that this portrait of Lisa del Giocondo is the painting in the Louvre. Vasari's account of the Mona Lisa comes from his biography of Leonardo published in 1550, 31 years after the artist's death. It has long been the best-known source of information on the work and the identity of the subject. Leonardo's assistant, Salai, at the time of his death in 1524, owned a portrait which he labeled in his personal papers La Gioconda, a painting given to him by Leonardo. The catalog of Leonardo da Vinci confirms that the painting likely depicts Lisa del Giocondo, with Isabella de Este being the only plausible alternative. Isabella was a military commander and the most famous patron of the arts of her time. Over a period of three months, Leonardo made several portrait drawings of Isabella, which is documented by letters. One of these is a profile drawing, preserved in the Louvre and shows similarities to the Mona Lisa. From 1501 to 1506, several letters from Isabella, directly and through agents, pursued Leonardo with demands for the promised execution of an oil portrait. The Mona Lisa falls precisely within this period. It has also been argued that the hierarchy of the Renaissance makes the portrait of an upper-class noblewoman more likely than the wife of an unknown merchant. Some scholars have developed other views, saying that Lisa del Giocondo was the subject of a different portrait, and identifying at least four other paintings referred to by Italian painter Giorgio Vasari as the Mona Lisa. Several other people have been proposed as the subject of the painting, including Leonardo himself. Sigmund Freud theorized that Leonardo was displaying an approving smile from his mother onto the Mona Lisa and other works that he's done. 
After the French Revolution, the painting was moved to the Louvre, but spent a brief period in Napoleon's bedroom in his palace. The Mona Lisa was not widely known outside of the art world, but in the 1860s, a portion of the French intelligentsia began to hail it as a masterwork of Renaissance painting. During the Franco-Prussian War from 1870 to 1871, the painting was moved from the Louvre to the Brest Arsenal, but moved back after the war. In 1911, the painting was still not popular among the general public. On August 21st, the painting was stolen from the Louvre. After some confusion as to whether the painting was being photographed somewhere, the Louvre was closed for a week to investigate. French poet Guillaume Apollinaire came under suspicion and was arrested and sent to jail. Apollinaire implicated his friend Pablo Picasso, who was then brought in for questioning. The real thief ended up being a Louvre employee, Vincenzo Perugia, who helped construct the painting's glass case. He carried out the theft by entering the building during regular hours, hiding in a broom closet, and walking out with the painting hidden under his coat after the museum had closed. Perugia was an Italian patriot who believed that Leonardo's painting belonged in an Italian museum. Perugia may have been motivated by an associate whose copies of the original would significantly rise in value after the painting's theft. After keeping the Mona Lisa in his apartment for two years, Perugia grew impatient and was caught when he attempted to sell the painting to Giovanni Poggi, the director of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. It was held and exhibited in that gallery for two weeks and then returned to the Louvre on January 4, 1914. Perugia served six months in prison for the crime and was hailed for his patriotism in Italy. The 1911 theft of the Mona Lisa and its subsequent return was reported worldwide, leading to a massive increase in public recognition of the painting. During the 20th century, it was an object for mass reproduction, merchandising, lampooning, and speculation, and was claimed to have been reproduced in 300 paintings and 2,000 advertisements. The Mona Lisa was regarded as, quote, just another Leonardo until the theft took place. Here's my take on the Mona Lisa. Paintings from the Renaissance are amazing. The Mona Lisa is not my favorite painting, but it is amazing, and it is definitely the most famous. And and I gotta be honest, I love the way the dude stole the painting. He just hung out in a closet, the museum closed, and he just grabbed it and bounced. September 11th, 1792. The Hope Diamond is stolen along with other French crown jewels when six men break into the house where they are stored. The Hope Diamond is a 45-carat stone formed deep within the earth over one billion years ago. It was originally extracted in the 17th century from a mine in India, based on remarks written by a French gem merchant, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who obtained the gem in 1666. It is blue in color due to trace amounts of boron. Its exceptional size has revealed new information about the formation of diamonds. It has been described as the most famous diamond in the world, 
and is currently housed in the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Much of the gemstone's history is unclear, including its original location, condition, finder, and owner. The earliest historical records suggest Tavernier may have stolen the stone in 1666. He brought a large, uncut stone to Paris, which was the Hope Diamond, prior to being cut. This large stone was known as the Tavernier Blue. It was a crudely cut, triangular diamond of 115 carats. Tavernier's book, called The Six Voyages, contains sketches of several large diamonds that he sold to Louis XIV sometime in 1668 or 1669. A blue diamond is shown among these sketches, and Tavernier mentions the Collar Mine in India as the source of the colored diamonds. In 1678, Louis XIV commissioned the court jeweler to recut the Tavernier blue, resulting in a 69-carat stone, which became known as the French blue. The gem was about the size of a pigeon's egg. It was set in gold and worn around the king's neck during ceremonies. In 1749, Louis XIV's great-grandson, Louis XV, had the French blue set in a more elaborate jeweled pendant. The assembled piece included a red spinal of 107 carats shaped as a fire-breathing dragon, accompanied by 83 red diamonds and 112 yellow diamonds. The piece fell into disuse after the death of Louis XV and became the property of his grandson, Louis XVI, whose wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, used many of the French crown jewels for personal decorations. She had the individual gems placed in new settings and combinations, but the French blue remained in the same pendant. On September 11, 1792, while Louis XVI and his family were imprisoned in the Square de Temple during the early stages of the French Revolution's reign of terror, a group of thieves broke into the royal storehouse, stealing most of the crown jewels in a five-day looting spree. While many jewels were later recovered, the French blue was not among them, and it disappeared from history. On January 21, 1793, Louis XVI was guillotined. Marie Antoinette was guillotined on October 16th of the same year. These beheadings are commonly cited as a result of the diamond's curse. Historians suggested that one burglar, named Cadet Guillot, took several jewels, including the French blue, to Le Havre and then to London, where it was cut into two pieces. In a contrasting theory, historian Richard Curin speculated that the theft of the French crown jewels was engineered by revolutionary leader Georges Danton as part of a plan to bribe an opposing military commander, Duke Carl Wilhelm of Brunswick. When under attack by Napoleon in 1805, Wilhelm may have recut the French blue to disguise its identity. The recut stone could have come to Great Britain in 1806 when his family fled there to join his daughter, Caroline of Brunswick. Caroline's nephew, Duke Carl Friedrich, was known to possess a 14-carat blue diamond that was widely believed to be another piece of the French blue. This smaller diamond's current whereabouts are unknown. A blue diamond with the same shape, size, and color as the Hope Diamond was recorded to be in the possession of the London diamond merchant Daniel Eliasson in September of 1812, just days after the 20-year mark since the theft of the French blue, 
just as the statute of limitations for the crime had taken effect. There are conflicting reports of what may have happened to the diamond during these years, but scientific investigations in 2008 confirmed beyond a reasonable doubt that the Hope Diamond and the French Blue were indeed the same gemstone at one point. Some historians suggest Eliasson's diamond may have been sold to George IV of the United Kingdom until his death in 1830. The stone was acquired by a rich London banker named Thomas Hope sometime prior to 1839, after a picture of the diamond was published in a gem catalog that year. The stone was set in a fairly simple medallion surrounded by many smaller white diamonds. After falling into the ownership of the Hope family, the stone became known as the Hope Diamond. Ownership of the Hope Diamond changed many times over the next hundred years, bringing mysterious misfortune to many of the owners and reinforcing the alleged curse of the stone. It was donated to the Museum of Natural History by a jeweler named Harry Winston in 1958, where it currently remains on display today. Here's my take on the Hope Diamond. The history and mystery surrounding the stone is very cool. Mysterious origins, it was stolen a couple times, went missing many different times, traveled all around the world to different kingdoms, changed hands constantly, and seemed to even cause problems for certain owners. It made me think of uh, Indiana Jones or something. And it also made me think of the movie Snatch by Guy Ritchie. If you haven't seen that, you've got to check it out. One of my all-time favorite movies. That's going to do it for today. I appreciate everyone tuning in. And we will see you next time. We're going to be talking about aliens next time. 